I think we're trying to redefine uh, how business works. The mantra has always been to have this focus on profitability. And what I would argue is that actually that's not asking enough. That's not asking enough of business. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Wonderful Leaders podcast. Can you believe it's been two years since we launched the podcast? And uh, we'd completely forgotten about it. And as we were editing this episode, we realized it's been over two years, in fact. And just reflecting a little bit this week and this month on just um, the amazing guests we've had, the amazing insights we've been able to gather through this podcast, and what a blessing it seems to have been to so many people. So for all of our listeners, I want to thank you so much for following us and trekking with us on this journey of leadership and life and hearing people's stories and their insights, not just around leadership, but around their life journey. So thank you to our listeners. A big thank you to Stewardship, as always, for um, being our sponsors for this this season of the podcast. We really appreciate Stewardship. We really appreciate everything they do um, in, the, in the philanthropy and the giving space. We've got some exciting things coming up as, as uh, wonderful leaders, which we'll talk about at the end. But this episode with Gordon was a really great episode talking to and, and listening to a, a man who seems to have, have had four careers and yeah we had a really great time there's some fantastic insight for entrepreneurs for investors in this episode so enjoy as always please subscribe share leave us a review and enjoy this episode with Gordon Eichhorst. Hi Gordon and welcome to the another episode. I was going to try and give the number what episode it was there but I don't know what number it is but welcome to another episode of the Wonderful Leaders podcast. It's great to have you with us. Thanks Dan, it's great to be here today. And there's so much to discuss and, and you know incredible sort of um, background and career and across so many different you know um, sectors but what does a typical day in the life of Gordon Eichhorst look like right now? Uh, I mean, you know, this is it, it's a really tough question. And I know there's kind of the cliche that you would say, like, no, no day looks the same. And I think in, in and I want to definitely stay away from that. I'll try to avoid any cliches today or as we're talking, because I think it's more valuable if I just speak from the heart. I would say, um, you know, the one thing that has been consistent I'm just doing a whole bunch of things right now. We'll, we'll talk about that a lot of different things. And there's a lot of different intensity as a result. So. I'll typically set my alarm for six and then wake up an hour earlier, worried, not worried, but just kind of thinking, how am I going to get all this stuff done? And as I lie in bed and kind of realize I'm not going to be able to go back to sleep, <laughs> uh, I, I get up and I have for, you know, for a while, quite a, a couple of years now, I basically uh, take time to pray. So I do that twice a day in the morning and the evening. And it's probably the hardest 20 minutes of the day because I'm feeling this intensity that I got so much to do and how am I going to deal with it? Because there's always crazy stuff going on every day. Uh, but I find that that's like the most important way to start. And if I ever do miss that, it, it the, the day ends up feeling even more frantic than usual. But because of the all the different things that I'm working on, it's, it's really a juggling act to try to figure out what is the most urgent thing uh, you know, that needs to get done today, make sure I get the urgent things done, you know, absolutely. And then also the important things and make sure I'm making progress on those. 
Brilliant. Excellent. Now, I've got loads of questions around that, but let's move on. Now, <laughs> this, is a, this is a big question, Gordon. I'm going to try and summarize what is a, an incredible career in the corporate, investment, and impact spaces. And it feels like three careers in one, at least three. But can you tell us a little bit about your early career years and how that began to take form and take shape and, and ultimately sort of lead you into the space you're in today? And that's a big question, I know. Yeah, no, it, it's uh, it's interesting because I'd like to say that, oh, it was all planned, but <laughs> uh, that would certainly not be the case. So uh, I, I actually do kind of look at it that way, that I've had a few very different careers. Uh, right. So uh, I actually, at uni, I, I actually took two degrees. I have a degree in economics and a degree in engineering and decided to start off in engineering. So for the first five years, I designed spacecraft and um, worked on that till about 1995. That was exciting. I enjoyed that a lot. I actually was working on my PhD at Stanford during that time frame. But uh, when the Cold War ended, even though I didn't work on defense projects, as a research engineer, it became there, there was just a lot less money to do research. So um, and, and also it was quite slow working with large aerospace companies. The, it, it, it's not extremely dynamic. It can take a long time to, to, to change things. So I went to business school uh, from there. Uh, University of Chicago. And then in between those uh, two years, it's a two-year program, I, I came to London and uh, worked in investment banking uh, for Goldman Sachs and then took a full-time job with them, so stayed in London. I went, well, finished my, my degree, came back to London and then uh, worked for them uh, until 2000. And then I joined Morgan Stanley and ran their technology banking practice uh, in 2000. So very much kind of M&A, corporate finance. So that was kind of a whole different career that I did for a while. Um, when tech crashed, all my clients started asking me about Asia. So I moved to Asia and uh, was the global head for the industrials and technology banking at HSBC. Uh, and so that was kind of a whole different kind of thing that came along. And uh, then finally, as, uh, as I got kind of the sense that banks didn't really have great strategies because everything kept changing every other year, uh, I left, uh, joined, uh, started my own advisory firm, and then launched a hedge fund in uh, 2011, focused on emerging markets. So, those that's kind of a a start, <laughs> like a whistle stop tour of of yeah of several careers in one. Now, just quickly, you mentioned engineering and aerospace. You actually had a role at NASA at one point. Is that correct? And how does one go about getting a role at NASA? Yeah, so uh, it's one of those kind of be be careful when you when you kind of offer your time to people. So um, I mentioned that. Uh, so I have a, a graduate degree from Stanford, and, and one of my uh, good friends he went on to become the chief technology officer for NASA back in the mid two thousand timeframe. And I sent him an email and said, you know, congratulations. Let me know if there's anything I can do to help you. And I was almost tongue in cheek because I'm like, you know, what can I possibly do to help you? But um, uh, he shot back pretty quickly and said, well, actually, I'd like you to join the advisory council on the technology and innovation committee. And it was um, there was actually quite a logic to that because he understood that for too many years, a lot of the technology had been driven out of the very large aerospace companies. And, and, and that's, you know, we're close friends. So he knew that's, that's kind of why I left the industry. It was just way too bureaucratic and slow. And uh, so I had a lot of experience with, um, with all kinds of technology companies. And, and so, uh, you know, brought in a perspective of how do we move technology faster? 
uh, and incorporate that into uh, into NASA technology to kind of work with uh, all kinds of uh, other companies uh, in you know not just the large contractors. So I, I was on the NASA Advisory Council from I think 2009 to 2018. Wow! So it's a long long stint then, a long period on the council yeah. and. Well, so now we're going to segue really sort of, I don't know if this is seamless, I don't know, but from from technology, investment, all of the side of things just discussed into the impact space. Um, again, you know, it's, a, it's a, a big segue there. And was Resurgo Ventures the first, your first kind of leadership role in that space? And if what was it that attracted you into the impact space? Well, you know. Yeah, that's a great question. So, um Actually, what what happened was I, um, I I closed my hedge fund. That's kind of a long story in and of itself. In 2016 and in 2017, I spent uh, a number of months thinking about, okay, you know, what do I want to do now? Um, I was, I, I think, because of work at NASA, I've always been aware of climate issues. And uh, in the interim period, uh, while I was in 2017, I also did some work with uh, a debt advice charity and some other uh, some other types uh, other people that were helping out some of the most disadvantaged people. And and I, I looked at that and I realized, and partly also speaking, I have, I have three kids and uh, my daughters who were teen, like kind of in their mid teens at the time, kind of were asking, well, you know, Dad, what have you done for the planet? <laughs> what have you done? I was like, well, probably not that much. And I thought, well, you know. God's given me all of these skills that I've developed over the years. There must be uh, some way I can I can put more, you know, better use to that to kind of help fix some of the problems that I saw developing both in, in social and environmental issues. And the uh, the Resurgo conversation came about uh, because they're a charity that focuses on youth unemployment. And in my discussions with um, Tom Jackson, who's one of the founders of Resurgo, there was, um, you know, how can we... How can we work with uh, businesses and startups in a way that um, we can incorporate more purpose into the startup space? And that, uh, so I, I then proposed to start an accelerator program, which I then uh, joined in the beginning of 2018 to launch at Resurgo. How did you find the transferable skills? I mean, did, did it did it feel like you know, with based on your experience, that you know, you kind of you could just come in at helicopter at that leadership level or did you feel like hang on this is a whole new space here that I've got to understand the nuances of I'm just quite interested because you know you've done a lot of very big corporate stuff on a global scale and, and you know how, how did you find entering into that space uh, I think I, I guess I've been fortunate that I have worked um you know running my own fund that was a small organization a small almost right. a startup if you will and then I've also, um, you know, managed large numbers of people, you know, in, in the corporate space. So I, I have, I was fortunate to have experience in both. I think that um, the biggest challenge, I think, has been and, and continues to be uh, in the impact space is, I, I think we're trying to redefine uh, how business works. And so I'll just, I'll just briefly touch on that. It's, it's, um, so, you know, fundamentally, if you look at, you know, business theory, finance theory, um, the, the, the mantra has always been to have this focus on profitability. And uh, what I would argue is that actually um, that's not asking enough. That's not asking enough of business. We spend so much of our time and resources uh, doing work 
um, you, you know, for us to just, you know, not think about the ramifications of all the other elements of, of what we're doing in our businesses just seems to be missing out. And certainly from a from a, a Christian perspective is not how we should be looking at our lives. So, uh, you know, trying to incorporate that. And so we what we do on the accelerator is we uh, we work with for profit startups that are doing that have a social or environmental mission integrated with the business. So. They're, they're, um, and, and the reason for that is really as the business grows and we expect the businesses to grow, the impact will grow. So it works together. It's not that it's kind of a little bit of an add-on or you know, giving 1% of your profits to charity. It's really using the power of, of all of the, the resources of the people, of the customers, of the suppliers, and doing it in such a way that you can fundamentally change the way we're interacting with, uh, with our planet and also with all of the people around us. Brilliant. And I, I sort of know you largely through um, that, the, that kind of ecosystem that you've kind of alluded to. Now, would you just sort of unpack that a little bit more for our listeners? Because what you, when you're talking about sort of change in that infrastructure, with, in terms of your world at the moment, that largely revolves around Impact Central, Chorus Networks and Opto Ventures. How does that all work and, and, and fit together? Yeah, so the, when I first started at Resurgo, um, the idea was, so we were running an accelerator and I had a business model, I'll call it like version 1.0, where we were working with uh, trying to get investors at the same time investing into, let's say, a group of startups at the beginning of an accelerator. That turned out to be a, whether it's a real or a perceived conflict actually doesn't really matter most of the times. So I think a lot of people worry about whether conflicts are real or perceived. Frankly, if it's a perceived conflict, then you need to deal with it anyway. So the, the structure, what we wanted to, what we realized was that, okay, when we're working with founders, um, we need to be 100% behind and supportive of the founder. And when we're working with investors, we need to be supportive of investors. And the reason is, is that when you're speaking with a founder, they wanna know that if they're gonna ask you questions about, well, how should I, how should I look at my growth or should I take this risk? If they think that, you know, you are somehow funneling that information over to their investors, are you necessarily acting for them? And similarly, investors are skeptical because they're saying, well, if you're supporting the founder, maybe you're just telling me these things and that's actually not the right picture. So we recognize that we needed to split them. And um, so Resurgo, um, I worked with Resurgo until the end of 2019. And then, uh, so Resurgo focuses on youth unemployment, but all of we were looking at environmental and a much broader palette of uh, social uh, social missions, and so therefore it made sense to split out. And so uh, I, I spun out of Resurgo and started Impact Central. Impact Central is focused on the founders. It's the accelerator portion. We run a six month program. We run an application process, and then we're always just a hundred percent supporting the founders. Uh, some accelerators, it's really just kind of a, let's say, a weeding out process. There's like a prize at the end and it's like knives out. One person gets the prize and everybody else is like carnage along the way. We don't see it that way at all. Uh, and I think that's one of the nice things about working in Impact. We want everybody and everybody is super supportive. So on the accelerator, there's a very uh, an environment of collaboration. How can I be helpful to you? How can you be helpful to me? And we are 100% supportive of the founders in any way we can be, along with you know, our mentors and the people that are working with us. Then for investors who wanted to uh, understand and find better opportunities for impact investing, we created Chorus. So um, 
I launched Chorus in 2020, and the idea was to create an angel network for investors that were, as I said, very focused on impact investment, not just for-profit startups, uh, but you know something that had both of them combined. And so we've developed that. And then what we also realized with some people, although people like to look at individual opportunities, if you don't have the expertise or the time to do your own due diligence and um, and and it, and it does take a certain amount of expertise to make individual investments. We then created Opto, which um, basically is a fund to invest into a handful uh, of startups at a time so that you can then turn over the management of of your investment to Opto. And I can imagine in the UK, that's quite a unique ecosystem, right? Uh, you know, I, I think not just in the UK. I, I was actually at uh, the Christian Economic Forum uh, last week and talking to people and um, everybody was like, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> and it, 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 it was, it does, uh, you know, I, I created it to a certain extent out of necessity. Um, if right. you run an accelerator and businesses don't get funded, there's kind of no point to go on the accelerator. Uh, sooner, soon enough, people will stop coming uh, versus if you are just running something that tries to invest in things, then there's this whole question about, well, what, you know, are there enough opportunities? Where are you finding these opportunities? So kind of allowing them to work better together, uh, we can then uh, kind of have a, a really big funnel that then brings everything down and the best opportunities can then get funded and, and continued and supported. Right. Brilliant. And just kind of helicoptering out a little bit and looking, going back to, you know, early career to now, what what have been some of those sort of standout moments in your career so far? Standout moments. Uh, I mean, I guess, you know, there's so many, so different things to, to talk about. Um, I guess, you know, I, I really feel that what I'm doing now, um, so much of what I did before is just preparation for what I do now. Uh, and it's for a couple different reasons. Um, I've had a lot of great success in the startup world. Um, that gives me credibility and knowledge to work with startups. And, um, and then similarly, uh, the, the, the things I've done, I've, I've made a lot of money for people on the investing side. So I have investors that also trust my opinion on, on how, how to invest in things. And, and I guess what it, it is very challenging trying to get people to understand how impact investing works. And so uh, I, I would, I would be lying if I said it's not super hard every day. Um, there's still a lot of misunderstanding. There's a lot of greenwashing. There's a lot of, there's a lot of people that are running startups that just kind of want to throw in a little impact because it's trendy. So, you know, that's not that's not what I want to support. And similarly, there's investors that um, they like it. But if it comes to a trade off between this or that, then, you know, they're uh, they'll like skewed perhaps too much towards uh, just the financial return. And I think we're at this very interesting moment in time where I think 63 percent of People in their 20s have eco-anxiety. Uh, the amount of social problems that we have are astronomical and they're, they're just everywhere. I mean, every country around the world and 
is 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 recognizing that we've kind of created systems that are that that massively disadvantage um, people. So I would say you know the most exciting things in many ways have been some of the things I've done recently. So for example, I'll just pick up pick a couple. The first uh, accelerator we ran in 2018, we had seven startups, and four of them are still going and doing amazingly well. One of them uh, is called New Ground Coffee. Uh, they last year they were nominated for UK Roaster of the Year, uh, but they also train and employ ex offenders, and they've fundamentally changed the lives of, of five ex offenders. And um, you know, at the same time, the early investors in New Ground are sitting on. Uh, 27 times their money. So, you know, wow. it's like, where is there a better investment than that financially? And and, and show me uh, investments that have had that type of a, um, you know, that type of a, uh, uh, of an impact return too is, is just phenomenal. And similarly, in that same cohort, we have uh, Luminary Bakery, which runs an amazing bakery, uh, both two of them, one in Stoke Newington, one in Chalk Farm. And every year they're, they're, they have over a million pounds of revenue now, and and you know they, they now help uh, more than sixty women every year to that are some of the most disadvantaged women to become independent again. Then we have Holos, which this is all still in the same batch of of seven. They make kombucha and also focus on helping uh, uh, human trafficking, and they're now stocked at Marks and Spencer. And then uh, Tranquility. Uh, is a early warning system to help um, youth in schools that are suffering from mental health. And they've had uh, tremendous success and, and are now getting investments such that investors uh, on that are also, you know, sitting on at least 10 times their money. So, you know, it's been really gratifying to show people that were skeptical that, yes, you can have a financial return and you can be transformative on important issues such as, mental health in teenagers, uh, you know, ex helping ex-offenders and uh, helping disadvantaged women and, and human trafficking. And we've done, you know, there's been others that have done amazing things on the environmental side. So it's, I feel very much that um, while I had some great success in the past, it was more kind of mainstream. And this feels in many ways so much more important because I really feel the direction that we're going and needs to change. We really need to step up our game if we want to, you know, create the society and the world we want to have. That's awesome. You can hear your passion, Gordon, for for the <laughs> investments you made and the space that you're, you know, helping to kind of um, pioneer in and, and helping to create, which is brilliant. So let me ask you a question the other side of the coin. Has there been an investment opportunity that you think, oh, there's one that got away, or I wish I was involved in that one? That's a really interesting question. I guess, first of all, in general, I try not to uh, think about regrets in terms, of, in, in terms of decisions that I might not have made. But I mentioned that I was at the, um, at the Christian Economic Forum last week, and somebody on a, on the stage made an, a, a really important comment and he, he couched it under the topic of negative compounding. And so a lot of times as investors, uh, in, in, you know, various Nobel prize winners have called, you know, compounding is, is kind of the eighth wonder of the world. And it's, it's, it's what works, right? It's what, it's what makes investments really grow. So in other words, you get, you know, you get a certain percentage return, but then you get a percentage on the percentage and that continues over time and over 10 years or 15 years, it can become a phenomenal 
uh, amount of wealth generation. And, and so, um, you know, a, a lot of people, when they're looking at an opportunity that potentially has a social dimension to it or an environmental dimension to it, uh, and they turn it down and they say, well, I'll, I'll just put my money into something that's purely financial. His point, which I thought was really important, is that, well, there's also a negative compounding factor. So in other words, uh, I, I mentioned the Luminary Bakery. So if we, we raised 250,000 pounds in 2019 to launch the second Luminary Bakery and create a space so that they could have 60 disadvantaged women a year going through that. The question is not only what has been the positive returns financially and impact wise, but what would the cost of that have been if those people did not put in the 250,000, sure, they could have made right. whatever, you know, uh, let's say in the market, they might've made 30 or 40% over that 24 month or 36 month period. But how many women would not have been able to be helped? And so, and, and that becomes, there's compounding there because it's them, it's their children, it's all these things. And I think that, uh, you know, it, I, I thought that was a really important thing to think about where we're, we're not capturing the negative costs of not addressing some of these problems. We, we, we like to say, oh, well, you know, I, I'll just not do that. But there's, there's also ramifications that can be generational if we're not dealing with some of these issues. As, as we found out, particularly on, on the environmental side this summer with a lot of the climate issues. Brilliant. And you, 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 with what you do now, and, and obviously there's a, there's a huge, um, I suppose, faith element in, in what, what you're doing as well, you know, in, in your current sort of ecosystem that you've got, you know, there's a, there's a real fundamental underpinning there of mm -hmm. faith. But taking a step back from that, how does, how does your faith inform what you do and how you do it as an individual? So yeah, so this is going to be a podcast on its own. Um, I, you know, I'll have to kind of wind back. Um, you know, for, for most of my life, uh, I had just tremendous blessing. Everything seemed to go right. And uh, then I had this kind of really difficult situation uh, on the hedge fund that I was managing. And um, it, it was a really horrible situation and, and very challenging. And that I would say that was a, a real pivotal moment for me because prior to that, and I, I, I imagine a lot of people can resonate with this. Prior to that, I kind of I went to church on Sundays and had a great time with my brothers and sisters and, you know, worshiped and felt great. And then Monday came along and then I was back in the secular world living the other six days as as I did. And what what happened there was it showed me that that's that is just not what I need to do. And. Uh, I just became uh, through a lot of just a lot of change about how I viewed my prayer life and and um, you know what I felt uh, God's calling was on on my life and whether I was living that and um, just a number of things that I've um, I, I guess I, I, I classify myself as someone who likes to learn so I've I've read a lot of uh, different things and, and received great teaching from people on this. And that's really deepened my journey of faith. And I guess what, you know, where I am now is um, I, I, there's a great line from uh, Craig Rochelle, if people listen to Craig Rochelle, where he says, um, you know, if what you're trying to accomplish does not require prayer, then your ambition is not big enough. 
Right. And that has, I would say that is the big shift. You know, I, I used to, I used to spend a lot of time only looking at, uh, looking at risk in a very specific manageable way. And going back to what I was just talking about with the negative compounding, I think the reason that resonated with me so much is to say, you know, God wants us to be out on the edge, but if you're to be out on the edge, it's going to be uncomfortable. And you can only stay out there if you have faith that that's where you're supposed to be. And you're also operating from a point where you know you cannot do it on your own. You are you are completely operating out of weakness and inability, and he's going to deliver for you. And there is just an, it is, <laughs> I can't describe the difference in living the one way versus the other. Um you know, the first way where you're kind of trying to assess risk in a very secular way feels very prudent, feels like you're being supposedly smart. You're, you're kind of doing all the right things, uh, but it, it's just it, it's just not true. It, it kind of it, it actually lives in this uh, incorrect world where you actually think you have a lot more control than you do versus living in a way of saying, actually, you know, if everything belongs to God and God's in control. I'm not in control. That's really scary, except if he's in control and I trust him to be in control, then I have to, then I'm relying on him completely. So, uh, you know, it, it probably sounds like I, <laughs> like I live that. And I, I, I always just say, I'm trying, I'm trying to do that. It, it is, it is, there's just every day there's challenges where I have to kind of go back and, and tell myself, no, 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 this is God's got this. It's going to work out. It's not. It, maybe it's not going to work out that I the way I planned, but it's going to work out. Yeah, that's brilliant. And I think what you're sharing there is is kind of counter in countercultural, and it's not intuitive to an entrepreneur because an entrepreneur or a founder or a pioneer type of leader is always here's the vision, here's the plan, we're going that direction, and you can become so so easily reliant on yourself and your skill set and your gift mix and the ability to make things happen and then you translate that into that kingdom culture that you're describing where it's a reliance on God and there's a humility that comes in prayer and realizing in your weakness there is the power and all of those things are quite counterintuitive to, to a leader like yourself and so I can appreciate that journey and I, and I can see that many leaders listening to this will be somewhere on that journey They'll be somewhere on that kind of scale of complete self-reliance. And, you know, I'm still trying to make it happen in my own strength and power on one scale, on one side of the scales. On the other side, it's I can't do it myself. I, I need yeah. that trust and that reliance each and every day. And so it's brilliant to hear that from, from you. And taking that into the workspace, how do you, how do you see that intersection between faith and work? And you kind of mentioned a few things on the podcast, just that sense of business having a greater responsibility than just a profit. And what's your, you know, over the years, how does that kind of worldview shaped? You know, we, we have to stop looking at it as an intersection. Faith and work have to be concurrent. And right. I hear a lot of, uh, in fact, I was, I was at, you know, just, you know, recently I've, I've heard, you know, people discussing it. It's kind of like, I, I feel that there's, there's, okay, so what is the challenge that we're facing? I, I think the question is, we know the world's in a bad place. 
And how are we, I think Christians are actually called, this is our time. We're, we're, this is where if we have an eternal view, people should be looking to us to basically say, you know, this is, we can work through time because we don't get stuck in one point in time. We're looking, we have, we have this eternal view, which is, which is really important. But, you know, for that to happen, uh, what we really need to do is think of how is everything we do. So our work, it's an extension. Our work is, it, it can't be this thing that we do on the side. It has to be concurrent with, uh, you know, how we're living. And I think that uh, what I find a, a challenge sometimes, um, in, you know, I, I used to lead like alpha small groups and, you know, we discuss this a lot with people is that it goes back to that, you know, okay, I have this faith thing going on on Sundays and then I have, you know, then, but then the world, I, then I have to work with everybody else in the world. And I like that's, we need to change that. What we need to do is say, okay, how can we, if, if the world isn't how we think it should be, in other words, we're not showing enough love to each other and sh- uh, stewarding the resources that we've been given to steward, then, you know, how do we work together as Christians to bring that into, into fruition? And it comes down to, not just going to work, acting in a secular way and telling people, you should come with me on Sunday. It's actually, how do we act at work in a way that the way that we're acting is so attractive to people in how we work that they say, my gosh, why, why, why do you care so much? Why, why, why do you have this concern for other people? How come when you negotiate, you're not trying to, to, you know, rip people off? Um, you know, how do you have this perspective? And and I find that actually um, is is a lot more uh, powerful in getting people to understand and change and move towards realizing why we're acting the way we're acting. Uh, and, and so it's kind of, I, I think that's a real calling for all of us to uh, to think about how we're acting in the in in, the, in our workplaces, the things that we're working on, and the way we interact with customers, suppliers, etc., to show them that um, we need to move in a direction that actually uh, is kind of a kingdom direction. And and you know, it's like, what are the fruits of the spirit? Are we showing that in our work? Uh, it, those types of topics. And I know that's really hard. And a lot of people on this podcast, and I, I actually think, you know, I was saying earlier. This is kind of why I feel that what I've been working on uh, or my, you know, my time prior to what I'm doing, uh, it, 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 that's why God had me go through that. Because, you know, I've worked 100 hour weeks at Goldman Sachs trying to crush people. I know right. what that's like. I know what that uh, what investment banking culture is like. I know what hedge fund culture is like. And I know that it's it's an oversimplification to say, well, you have to act that way. You don't. You do not have to act that way. Uh, there, we we need to we need to take a, a view of how how we're going if if we're not creating the world we want to you know see created then we're kind of part of the problem. Right, and just a, a question on that: Have you in the last you know couple of years? You said something earlier. You know, obviously we're in a, a, a time in in history now where there's so many challenges economically, geopolitically. I mean, just across the board, socially, mentally. So this feels like there's a deconstruction of so many things. From the businesses you're working with, the leaders you're working with, the investors you're working with, the church networks you're part of, are you seeing a shift in people's thinking and application towards the things that you're saying? 
you know, are, are, is the needle being moving or it's, yeah. is it moving slowly? That's a great question. Uh, I was on the phone yesterday with someone who has a very senior role in impact investing at an extremely large company. And there's a lot of noise. And he, he you know, he agrees with me on this. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of uh, talk in the in, in the news. Impact is a trending topic. Purpose is a trending topic. Is are things really happening? And I guess. Some people ask me, it's like, well, you've had this career that gave you access to CEOs of large companies. Why are you spending time with these tiny little startups? And right. my my comment to that, I actually get huge comfort from like the book of Acts. You know, if you look at it, Christianity, what look at what is today. It started off with a couple hundred people, uh, you know, so it's it, but I think that that's fundamental it's depth and depth is really important in terms of how you do this. So you need people to, to be fundamental in their belief of what they're looking for. And, you know, what we can do with, with, when I work with a startup founder, who's got a passion for what they're doing and, and is not going to give the impact up, I can help, I can work with them and create a structure in a business that we can demonstrate that. Yes, you can run an amazing coffee company and do a heck of a lot more than just, you know, run an amazing coffee company. You can actually transform people's lives. Um, and, and they're willing to, to go there versus uh, on the corporate level, what you find is kind of people are saying, what's the minimum I have to do to satisfy? And I just think that's that's completely the wrong approach. And so what I would say our, our challenge, and, you know, once again, this is also something where, you know, we as Christians have to look at this differently is because we're supposedly all about community. Community is the thing that's missing in solving our problems. Um, a lot of people put forward tech solutions that are kind of pinpoint things that on their own are going to solve all their problems or, um, you know, the solutions that allow you independently to deal with something. But if my very solid view on this is that our, our problems will only be solved in community. We need to work together to bring up, you know, to help out those on the fringes, they need to be brought in and, you know, kind of how do we, everybody will do better. Everybody will do better. It's, it's not, instead of seeing this as a, as a competition where we're having a lot of hoarding and all this type of stuff going on, where, where lots of people are unhappy, uh, you know, we need to rethink that and community is the way to do that. I guess I'll just um, mm, say something it. briefly. I, I, um, I happened to, I, I mentioned this conference that I went to last week. And as part of that, we had to write a paper. So every, all the delegates had to write a paper. And I wrote a paper on this where um, I talked about something that uh, I, I saw initially in a book by uh, Ed Silvoso in, in a book he wrote called Ecclesia. And it talks about uh, kind of three different types of wealth or actually four. And usually when we talk about wealth, we're talking about material wealth. And uh, but in, in reality, we should be thinking about three other types of wealth. And those are relational, motivational and spiritual. Right. And a healthy business actually scores high on all of those. Relationally, it's a place where people want to go to work and how they interact with the people outside their business. We know that's broken because we just went through the big quit. Right. That was a global phenomenon. Everybody quitting their business. Nobody liking where they work for. So. The way companies are working is now there's relational poverty. There's not relational wealth. Similar, similarly, motivational. Uh, people do not know why they're doing what they're doing in their companies. They're just like, it's, it's, if it's all I'm doing is just making some money, then, you know, why don't I 
you know, do something else and, and make some money? Or how can I divide right. my time up differently? And they just don't feel like they want to want to be there. And then spiritually is also really important, obviously for Christians, but actually for everybody. I, I, I fundamentally believe that, you know, there's everybody has a hole that needs to be filled. And right. spiritually, uh, you know, how how we how we interact on that as companies is, is really important. And if you if you score high on all of those, I actually think you get to, uh, you know, kind of that is that is the kingdom of God scoring high on those three elements. And if you seek that, then you get the you get the the material wealth comes along with it. And if anything, what I've been super encouraged by, I've been saying this for four years without any evidence. But now to see some of the businesses that we've been working on just demonstrate that, that they've had tremendous financial success by focusing on relational, motivational, and, and spiritual elements. It's, that's, that's really, really gratifying. Brilliant. So you feel like, we're, you know, I suppose personally from your perspective, we're in a stage where you're beginning to see the fruit from that and the kind of outcomes, which is often where the investment mindset starts, right? It starts to the outcomes. What's the return? What's the, you know, what does the exit look like? And but you're now starting to see that on a different level of wealth measurement and wealth management. You know, relational, well, I, I think spiritual. Some of the things that we're working on, I, I definitely would say we're seeing it. I think that um, I think the difficulty right now is measurement systems that people are perhaps over focusing on um, and trying to. So, so why why does the investment industry like financial return so much? They they like it so much because it's so simple. Uh, you know, it gets boiled down into two numbers, risk and return. So return is obviously, you know, a calculation and risk. The typical definition uh, theoretically is is a is a function of volatility. So, you know, those are, are, are metrics that have been you, you can pretty much boil any investment project that you want to look at into those two factors. And that's what people do. And they kind of give you two numbers. And then from that, you're supposed to decide if it's good or bad. Um, what we're not taking into account are all the negative externalities and other things that happen in the, let's say, in the uh, in the achieving of that return. And we need to both count the negative, but also look at the positive. So it's like taking a much bigger view of that. Where I'd say we're at right now is that people want people theoretically want to take that bigger view. What they're realizing is two things. One, it's hard to calculate that. And two, it's, it might actually take some sacrifice and change and people don't like change. It's like, what do you mean? This has been working fine. Well, actually we kind of know it hasn't been working fine, but that's, that's not too easy for people to change. And no, I get that. And there's a collective responsibility, isn't there, in that process as well. And mm -hmm. so drilling that down, you know, it's been brilliant to hear, you know, your kind of insight and thoughts on this, drilling that down into a younger leader or a younger entrepreneur, you know, we get a lot of younger leaders and entrepreneurs listening to this podcast and they really value content from people like yourselves that are, you know, ahead on that journey and have got something to, to really input. What would, and again, this is a big question, but let's just get into one or two things maybe. What kind of advice or encouragement would you give to younger or startup entrepreneurs looking to build a business or organization but who, who have impact at the heart of it? Yeah. I, I think I'd say I'd say two things, and both of them have to do with truth, and that is to always seek truth and to always speak truth. And that might sound really, you know, kind of grand, and you know, oh, what does that mean? And but I actually think it is 
it is quite straightforward. First of all, um, I, I think we actually know truth. I think we we understand it both mentally and certainly emotionally. But what we tend to do is mentally we try to create excuses for why we don't have to then do that, or we try to manipulate it so that it's easier for us. And I think that, that that's a that's always a real challenge, uh, especially for an entrepreneur, uh, because it's it's important to try to seeking truth is important because it's trying to figure out what is it what is it that I'm really doing, and what is it that is really making a difference for my customers and the people that I'm working with on this, and and what is our purpose in doing it, and you have to be brutally honest with yourself, and so like on our accelerator program, we spend a lot of time digging into that because. Right. Uh, you, you can't sleepwalk into this. You know what I mean? You, you can, but you will likely not have a successful outcome. Uh, so to the, to the extent you can understand your motivations, why they're important, and then explain those to people, that is what, um, what really matters in terms of building a, a, a successful business. And I'll say a successful business with integrity. And I find it interesting because business school spent hours and hours and classes on integrity, yet I actually feel that it, it, it comes down to some pretty straightforward actions and how you act. It's uh, oftentimes, you know, that's, they tend to be trying to manipulate by saying different, different ways you can demonstrate integrity. I think, I think we know integrity when we see it. I think it's very, I think it's pretty obvious. Right. And what are some of those, um, leadership keys that that you've held on to throughout your life you know as you've walked on this journey and you know we we just you know unpacked your career to you know there's a lot more to unpack but what were some of those keys that you've carried through with you that that really that you've valued and you know that you hold on to so i'd say that i i've actually had to fundamentally rethink my views on on leadership uh, right I think I, I started off with the typical view that, you know, the leader is out in front fighting, you know, showing what needs to be done and kind of cajoling those behind him to, to get in line. And um, I actually don't believe that anymore. I actually think that uh, that that's a that's how you build your ego. Right. <laughs> I, I think that um, I, I actually see leadership now as service and. It's kind of, you, you know, with for those with experience, it's important to find a way to consolidate vision so that people are going in the same direction. But then everything from there really comes down to how do I then serve the people to then be their best and go in that direction? And it's not by doing what I do. It's in trying to figure out how to help them do what they want to do. So it, it's it's kind of. You know, it's a complete reversal to what I saw for you know, kind of what I thought for 20 years was was leadership. And again, that is so countercultural to the stereotypical pioneering CEO, visionary leadership style. Yeah, um, which, yeah, I mean, again, that is a whole other podcast episode, which I would love to unpack with you. So <laughs> two more questions, Gordon. Sure. So I'm going to let you go. First question. What does Gordon do to relax? So I, I actually really love what I'm doing. And I think that, uh, so I had a call, I had a call on Friday from, from one of the founders where I'm on, a, on, on the board and they just, you know, 
told me some really exciting news and it's just to to kind of I, I guess I don't want to say I don't relax, but what I'm trying to what I what I would say is that I I see it now much more holistically. So I'm not trying to um, I'm not trying to find the times I do nothing versus the times I work hard. I'm trying to actually build that in together. So, uh, for example, uh, tomorrow I'm going to go visit one of the another company that I'm on the board of. And, you know, we're just going to sit. I, I just want to go and hang out with them for now. We're just going to hang out. We may not even talk about business. We're just going to spend some time together. That is brilliant because we're journeying together. And that, uh, you know, some people might say, well, that's work. And I'm like, no, that's just, you know, that's just being on, on the journey together and supporting each other. And I want to I want to hear what they're doing. And I want to hear about their kids and what, what what's going on there. And what, how they're looking at the summer and just to spend time with them. And it's kind of, you know, I, I think that that's why from a Christian community perspective, how do we bring, how do we kind of make the church and the workplace where Christians are working the same? Right. You know, so that you're, you're the same on Monday as you are on Sunday. Absolutely. And what, what I'm picking up there, Gordon, as well, is that sense of fulfillment. It's that almost like that biblical piece where you've fulfilled and it's holistic and actually you could be at work or reading a book at the side of a lake, if that's what you enjoy doing, but you're still feeling the same level of fulfillment and contentment, yeah, you know, which absolutely. I think, which I think is, which I think for a lot of people is a holy grail, right? Is to yeah. be content in who you are and what you do at all times. So I said, it's a really interesting take on the answer. And I, th I think that's, that's actually quite helpful because it actually helps to break that um, work relaxed divide. Yeah, I go to work and I'm on the hustle and I'm yeah, making this thing work and then I relax at weekends or I have my yeah. four hours here where I do my, my, I go to the gym or I, you know, I, you know, I read a book, whatever it is. And I think I really, I like the answer because you're speaking about biblical contentment. And fulfilled. Yeah. I'll just add, I, I, I heard from someone once is like, um, they were talking about like work-life balance and right. they were saying how you want to achieve, a, you know, you want to achieve a level of work where you don't have to stop every few months and decompress for a week. Right. If that's not actually a, that's, that's not really a, a, a healthy approach. That means you're just kind of finding these release valves and but you're over pressurizing and you're thinking that that's like that's working but actually what you need to do is find a, a balance all the time and that comes through the purpose of what you're doing being consistent with what you think is actually fulfilling your life all the time absolutely and that release valve is so dangerous in the life of a leader particularly those in spiritual leadership that release valve can often become very unhealthy and you know that that that's a you know that's a conversation for another podcast. But I think you're absolutely right. And so, final question then: What is one piece of advice you would give your younger self? So it may sound strange, but I would just say always be bold. And I I journal now, and I I write about this. And one of the things I think about a lot is the the, the parable of the sower. And so I kind of say, all right, so. Hopefully your, your listeners know the, the parable of the sower, but basically the, you know, God is, God is the farmer and he throws out the word through seed and, and some of it falls on the path and basically never takes root. People don't hear it. And, you know, I'm, I'm so thankful that, that I've heard it and I, you know, I've heard the word and I, that 
that's something that moved in my heart. And then the next level is that it can fall on rocky ground. And people get really excited and uh, they, they get very enthusiastic. But then as kind of other challenges fall come up, they, they fall away quite quickly. And rather sadly, I, I mentioned that I've been kind of a, a, um, a small group leader on alpha courses. I've seen some amazing people really fired up and then uh, fall away. And, and so that's I think that's challenging. Uh, but I guess the one that I focus on really is the third. And I feel that I find that one's interesting because that's the the seed that falls in the thorn. And the way I love the way it's described, which is um, the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth keep those seeds from flourishing. And I really find that, and I, I actually think this is the challenge for the church today uh, amongst amongst the Christians, amongst you know those of us that go to church on Sundays that are you know consistently doing things. The difference is boldness to get past the deceitfulness of wealth and the worries of this life. You can; Those are so distracting and they keep you from doing the exciting things that God actually wants you to do. And I just know, you know, I, I don't have regrets, but what I do is I look back and I say, wow, if I would have just been, I knew what I needed to do. And if I would have just been bold and done that, right. what might have happened? And that I take as encouragement when I'm at the next situation where I'm going, oh my gosh, this is going to crash horribly. I should just not do this. But instead I have to say, no, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to trust that God's got a plan. I'm doing this for a reason and I'm going to be bold and I'm going to see I'm going to I'm going to trust that something's going to come out of this. And, and it's hard. I think it's it's really hard. It is it is the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. But if you can get past that, you know, you can do the hundred, the 60, the 30 times. Uh, and that I think that's amazing. Awesome. What a great way and a dangerous way to end the podcast. Those that are listening, saying right, driving their car right now and they're saying, right, I'm going to be bold. But that's brilliant. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. Gordon, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for your insight. For your wisdom and just sharing your journey along the way with us and yeah may you be blessed with everything you're doing thanks dan great talking to you wasn't that a great episode with gordon eichhorst such great insight into his career and into his life and just before we finish today we've got um some things coming up which i wanted to let you know about firstly we've got the wonderful summit coming up in march 2023 and that's an event bringing together Christian entrepreneurs, investors, creatives, innovators together in London for a one-day summit, which is going to be absolutely brilliant. Now, for now, if you could just join the waitlist, which is at wonderfulsummit.com, register your details for more information. During the same event, we're actually going to be hosting the inaugural Rise Awards, which is awards celebrating Christian entrepreneurship and leadership in the UK and further afield. So again, if you're a Christian entrepreneur, an investor, an innovator, or someone who's interested in this space, please do join the waitlist there. We'll have a number of other events coming up leading up to March 23, which we'll keep you updated about. But for all information, if you go to wonderfulleaders.com and register on the email list, you'll be kept up to date. As always, please do leave a subscribe, share, leave us a review, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Wonderful Leaders podcast. Yeah.